And welcome to the Seahawks 360 podcast, a sports ethos production. I'm your host, Candace Hagens. And as always, it's a pleasure and it's a privilege to talk Hawks with you guys. Your Seattle Seahawks fell in defeat and are now officially two and three, losing to the New Orleans Saints in what was another shootout, 39-32. Seahawks lose. But despite that loss, there are a lot of interesting talking points coming out of that game. Most notably, again, Geno Smith, who put on a show and had an impressive 268-yard game with three touchdowns, no interceptions. With a 139 passer rating, he was incredible. And honestly, there were a lot of opportunities left on the table that were beyond his control. DK Metcalf dropped a perfect touchdown pass. There was also a fumble by DK Metcalf on opportunity. Now, I think that fumble was iffy. We'll talk about that. But I, but yet, they called it a fumble. So it was a turnover. But there were a lot of opportunities left on the field still. The score could have been even higher. The Saints were basically given, given, I tell you, a touchdown because of a almost inexplicable Michael Dixon play where he tries to rugby punt it, I think was the initial concept. And he decides to run for it. He basically gets fumbled. And, and they essentially give the ball and give the give a touchdown to the Saints. They, they spotted them seven points. And unfortunately, that's what ended up being the margin of the game. There were a lot of things that could have went differently for the Seahawks. They did definitely didn't have any momentum going their way. A lot of people come away talking about the referees. There were several, in my opinion, questionable calls that did that went against the Seahawks. I think there could be a legitimate argument made that the referees interfered with the game, given the magnitude and the momentum that those calls ultimately gave the Saints and took away from the Seahawks consistently. Like it wasn't even just calls were going against the Seahawks. It was just momentum plays. And so when it's momentum plays at key moments like that consistently throughout the game, you do have to question it. Tariq Woolen was given, it had a penalty on him that I think was questionable. Damian Lewis, no, actually, I think it was Charles Cross that was given another penalty, and that seemed very weak. It was a holding call that I do not believe was a true holding call. So just a lot of things went against the Seahawks. But like I said, it was an interesting game. Defense was atrocious again. We can talk a little bit about that, but I think that it's been talked about enough. At this point, there just needs to be some changes made on the defense. Defense looked bad, with the exception of Tariq Woolen, yet again. But the question and the thing that I want to talk most about today is the quarterback position. Because Geno's play has put the Seahawks at an interesting position. When the season started, it was assumed that the number one need for the Seattle Seahawks would be quarterback. Because Geno Smith is on a one-year deal. He was widely viewed as a stopgap at best, but probably the league's worst quarterback at worst. A lot of people thought that Drew Locke would start eventually, that Geno wouldn't even get a lot of opportunity to play. He wouldn't play well at all. And Geno has just repeatedly, week after week after week, stacked up not just good performances, but elite performances. So let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. 
The question that I have and that I want to emphasize the most in today's episode is, should the Seattle Seahawks still draft a quarterback? It is the buzzing question throughout Seahawks fandom and to some extent the league in general. So let's get into it and talk some Hawks. So I'm, I touched on the game a little bit. I really don't plan to talk that much about the game. There's not a, there's not a whole lot to say, I don't think. Or, or maybe there is, but I'm just not going to emphasize that in this episode because there's a much more interesting topic of conversation, like I mentioned, and that is, should the Seahawks still draft a quarterback? Right now, Geno Smith is ranked number one over a Patrick Mahomes, over a Josh Allen, number one in PFF ranking at 90.2. He is also ranked third in yards per attempt at 8.3 yards per attempt. He's number one in completion percentage for those who have over 20, a minimum of 20 attempts, 75.2% there. He's ranked number one in passer rating at 113.2. I mind you, Patrick Mahomes' passer rating right now is 110.5. And like everybody expected, your Seattle Seahawks are ranked the number one offense in the NFL using DVOA or or measured by DVOA. And for those of you who may not know, DVOA stands for Defensive Adjusted Volume Over Average. And essentially what they do is it ranks offenses, but it it accounts for some things that just general statistics don't. So quarter scrambles are accounted as passing plays instead of rushing plays. There's an an account for if somebody is playing indoors, so indoor plays taken, taken into account, as well as strength of schedule to some extent. So a lot of factors go into it, but it is probably one of your best, most accurate assessments of offensive efficiency that exists in the NFL. And the Seattle Seahawks rank number one in large part, in no small part, because of Geno Smith. Right now, statistically, he is a clear top five quarterback in this league. And I don't think... A lot of people, or really anybody, including myself, who was a Geno optimist. I was a Geno advocate. I I said that he would play well. I said he would outdo or outlive everybody's expectations. But that's just because everybody's expectations were so low that I did think he would be able to do a better job than people thought that he would. He's outsurpassed even what I could have imagined. And so because he's playing like a franchise quarterback, at least through the first five weeks, and it has yet to be, you know, to, to, to be told if he can keep this up throughout the remainder of the season. But assuming he can, because there are a lot of really sustainable things about Geno's game that I think can carry over game to game. His accuracy, that doesn't seem to be going away. It seems to be very sustainable. But his control of the and his command of the line of scrimmage, getting the Seahawks in and out of plays and his ability to read defenses properly doesn't seem to go away just because that's just the depth of his knowledge. I, I I don't see a real reason why he should have a tremendous dip. It's not anything obvious. Now, of course, no team has been able to truly expose his weaknesses and Gino does have them, 
he does have a ceiling. And so we'll see as the season progresses what he looks like against a Bucks defense and things like that. But if he continues his play, the Seahawks then have found themselves a franchise quarterback who they don't have under contract through next year. And so the question is, what do you do with that? A lot of people have been arguing that because Geno has been playing so well, the draft focus needs to shift from quarterback to defense in the first round with their first two first round picks. That's what a lot of people are talking about. And in fact, a lot of mock drafts are mocking that the Seahawks will select two defensive players in the first round and not a quarterback. Some do, you know, assume that they'll get a quarterback steal. But if you look at the recent ones, not really. The consensus is the Seahawks have found their quarterback. But I want to question if that's a foregone conclusion. Because as I mentioned, Geno is not under contract next year. And I think people, a lot of people assume that the Seahawks will easily be able to reattain and re-sign Geno Smith. I think that's the wrong assumption. In fact, I have legitimate serious questions about Gino, about the Seahawks' ability to retain Geno if he keeps up this form of play. I think he's going to price himself right out of what the Seahawks can do. A lot of people think that Geno can get a $15, $20 million deal. Well, if you think that, let's go over some numbers. Let's talk through some scenarios. Here are real contracts that happened. There aren't a lot of situations historically that have been anything close to what Geno has been or will be if he's able to sustain this level of play. But here are a couple close examples. Jameis Winston, who was a starter for the Bucks for years. He sat, did a backup quarterback job for some time, sitting behind Sean Payton and, and Drew Brees, learning more about offenses and decision-making, which was his biggest downfall. And then he came out in 2021 and he started for about seven games and he was playing well. His completion percentage ended up being about 58%. He had 14 touchdowns, three interceptions, a passer rating of 102, and he averaged uh, 7.5 yards per attempt. It's pretty good stuff. It's it's not as good. Right now, it projects to be around where his completion, his completion percentage is lower, but a lot of his other stats match up to where by the end of the year, Geno will be. But this is seven games, right? And so Geno has really almost outsurpassed this in his seven games alone. Well, Jameis Winston got injured. Major injury. ACL took him out. But despite the ACL injury, and only having seven games of competent play, Jameis Winston was able to ascertain a two-year, $28 million extension on seven games and a major injury. You know how many question marks people have or players have coming off an ACL injury, and that still got him 14 mil. So for people thinking you can get Geno Smith for this level of play for anything between 15 to, mil, 15 to 20 million, I think we can safely throw that out of the box because Jameis didn't even play as well as Geno's playing right now. And assuming Geno can stay healthy, he would have been able to sustain that over a whole year. There are questions about 
when they sign Jameis, will he be able to, you know, would he be able to sustain that? Would he have fallen off of a cliff at some point throughout the year? Well, they didn't know, but they signed him the $28 million anyway. Which means I think the bare minimum that you can expect to get Geno for is up around $20 million. That's the bare minimum. But I, I, don't, I don't think that's really going to be what Geno will end up going for. Here's another similar situation, a Ryan Tannehill sort of situation, if you will, where Ryan Tannehill was awful in Miami. And even though he had the opportunity to start, he was just bad. But he had a huge breakout year in 2019. In 2019, Ryan Tannehill had a 70% completion rate, which is more along the lines, still lower than Geno, but more along the lines of where he is. He had 22 touchdowns, six interceptions. 9.6 yards per attempt and a 117 passer rating. Now, that's more in line with where Geno is. That's more comparable, and he was able to sustain that over a whole year. Well, guess what? That got him a four-year, $118 million deal. And that was a few years ago. So imagine with the cap going up, that kind of year, one year was able to secure him a four-year deal. A lot of people are saying get Gino for a year, maybe two, no more than three. But does Gino really want to settle for less than a four-year deal? Will he have to settle for less than a four-year deal with that level of play? Ryan Tannehill was 31. Gino's 32. There's not a huge difference in age there. It's not like Tannehill had a ton of upside at the time. But yet he's still got massive money. I mean, at least, I mean, relative to the QB rankings, it's not massive money. But if you're talking about the Seahawks, that's a lot of money to give out. That's a big commitment to make. And while Tannehill was able to sustain similar play, even actually in some ways better play in 2020, these past two years has has really seen him fall back to the mean. He's regressed to the mean, Tannehill. And I have questions about the same if the same thing will happen with Geno. You sign in a four years. Does he really sustain that play? Does he really live up to that contract? Does he make that look like a great contract? I I'm not sure about that. I I've, I in fact I question it. As great as Geno has played I don't know if he'll ever sustain that over a period of four years. I think you see slight regression back to the mean because like Ryan Tannehill, there's not, there's not upside there. There's not. And I would argue that, you know, does have a better arm than Tannehill probably ever had. But when it comes to interceptions and things like that, in, in those big moments, in those really big moments when you're in the playoffs and teams are scheming, scheming to take away your strengths, to make you play towards your weaknesses. Will Gino really be able to do that? I think there's a ceiling on that. I think he might even be able to take the Seahawks further than Russell Wilson did in the playoffs. That's not saying much, but I think he could get the Seahawks to an NFC championship perhaps if the defense were, you know, 
even halfway good, mediocre. But I just don't know if he can get you to a Super Bowl. And it is a valuable question about if the Seahawks should really pretty much put all of their resources into Geno because that's what that would be doing. The Seahawks have less cap space than people think because they've already re-signed Quandre Diggs, Jamal Adams, those contracts, Tyler Lockett, DK Metcalf, those contracts, Uchenna Nwosu, Shelby Harris, those contracts. They already have players they're, they're paying big money to. The Seahawks have $32 million in effective cap space. Well, for those who say, let's just franchise, you know, Smith, you want to guess what the, what the franchise what the franchise tag would be for a quarterback? $31.5 million. So you would effectively be killing all Casper. Like, I'm not even sure you'd have enough money to pay. You wouldn't. You wouldn't have enough money to pay the draft picks by franchise tagging Geno Smith. People say draft the quarterback, franchise tag Geno. Oh, well, fine and good. Now, there are things the Seahawks could do to mitigate their cap space a little bit, make some room to be able to pay Geno and the draft picks, but that would be it. There'd be no other moves. And this team is still really early in the rebuild. There's still a lot of holes that need to be filled. I don't think that's the way to go. So you rule out the cap space option. We've ruled that out effectively. We've ruled out the option in terms of him being able to take anything less than 15, I mean, 20 million, because that's not happening. To me, that leaves a couple of options. They could extend him now, not knowing if he'll be able to sustain, sustain this level of play. I think if they did that now, they may be able to get him for around, I'll say, 25 million. Because if the franchise tag is 30.1. Sorry, not 30.1, 31.5. If that's the franchise tag, you might be able to get him for a little less over an extended period of time. You know, maybe you can get him for, you might be able to get him for like two years, maybe three. He might agree to that. It's more long-term money. It's more money than he's seen in a long time. And he already knows he can excel in this offense. That will only get you so far though, in terms of that, I, there's a chance you know can decide that he wants to bet on himself because in the free market, the Ryan Tannehill deal was worth $29.5 million per year, if you didn't want to do the math on that. That's $30 mil per year. Like I said, that was a few years ago, and the cap is expected to go up. I think you'd be... Very lucky. And Gino would be doing the Seahawks a major favor if you were able to to ascertain him again for anything less than $30 million. I mean, I know I, $20 million is the floor, right? But I think he'd have to regress in order to be worth 20 Why would he accept 20 when Ryan Tannehill is getting 30 Right? That's... That's in line. Like that's that that pretty much makes that the floor for him, given that I think he's playing better than Ryan Tannehill played in 2019. In a lot of metrics. Are you willing to pay Geno Smith $30 million? 
I don't think that I am. And I am a huge, huge, huge Geno advocate. I am. Please don't mistake me. You all, if you listen to this podcast from the beginning, you know I advocated for Geno. Felt like Pete went in that direction. And I felt like Pete was making the right decision all along by picking Geno over Locke. I always had a, I believed he could do far better than people ever thought he could do. But I also know that there is a ceiling on Geno. And this is year one of a rebuild to pay Geno Smith this money, knowing how bad the defensive is and how many holes need to be filled. Not only does it shorten, the, does it basically put you in win now mode right over again after basically spending a year in rebuild. It's a shortcut. It's a shortcut to pay Geno. It just gets you back to winning games now, regular season wins now. But the goal is a Super Bowl. And I'm not confident that Geno can get this team to the Super Bowl and win one. I think it'd be a fluke if he could even get you there. As much as I respect everything Geno Smith has done, there's a ceiling there that I believe still exists. I think if they're, if this is the playoffs, Gino wouldn't look as good. He just wouldn't, especially with the whole year of tape out on him and what he does well. The NFL catches up, and I don't think it'll be worth. I don't think it'll be worth it to take almost all of your effective cap space and spend it at one position. The Seahawks have too many holes. Now, if this roster was more balanced, perhaps that's a whole different conversation. It really is. If this defense was everything that people hoped it would be and it was at least ranked, you know, people 15th, top 20 at least, and then you could get a few draft picks in and just help, you know, build it back up. If it was that simple, great. But they're one of the worst in the league. They're not the worst in some metrics. But if you if you do the eye test and if you look at the situations where the offenses that they've played has, you know, key missing players and, and so forth, I think that puts them as the worst. Statistically, they're not right now. The Lions are. But. Again, this team has too many holes, I think, to put those kind of resources in one position and essentially say, Gino's going to take us over the top, even with. A terrible defense. We've already seen he can't overcome that. No one can. It's not a knock on Gino. No one can overcome a defense that's playing this bad. So honestly, unless Gino's willing to take $28 million, something like that, something, or really, I'll say 25 to $28 million, no more than 28 I don't think you can re-sign him. I don't think you can bring him back. I just don't think it's possible or I don't think it's wise because it'll, it'll, it'll be, it'll be a short-term fix. It'll be a band-aid fix, right? But this is a strong quarterback class that is very deep and it's flawed, right? No quarterback is a Joe Burrow or, or Trevor Lawrence type of prospect. But I really think that this team is built in every way for the future. And I think one of the cool things about Shane Waldron and his system is that you don't have to be the 
best quarterback in the league in order to thrive in the system. The system is fairly quarterback friendly. And if they can get a defense to help out a little bit, it'll be even more quarterback friendly. The system, the the players, they're there. And so I'm not going to pretend like the Seahawks can can take five years to rebuild this team. They're paying players to contribute to wins now. Right, they're playing. They're paying Jamal Adams. They're paying Quandre Diggs. Those players I just mentioned that they have to pay now. Those players are are key pieces, I think, to making sure that the Seahawks don't have an extended rebuild process. I think the Seahawks' best bet is to stick to the original plan. Yes, this was unforeseen. Yes, you know, it, there's an opportunity here to get a quarterback now and just build that defense. But I just don't see Geno being the Super Bowl winning quarterback. I just don't. Some point there's got to be a regression to the mean. Even even if it's not this year, right? It sure was for Ryan Tannehill. Can the, can the Seahawks really fix the defense in the next two years to make it this a Super Bowl winning team? It's an awful lot of pressure, and it puts the Seahawks right where they were before, where you know, but. You're paying Gino, right? You're paying him all this money. Two years go by. You get him for two, three years, let's say. Let's say you make a deeper playoff run, but you don't you don't win the Super Bowl. All right, well, now it's time to extend your two tackles. Now it's time to pay Tariq Woolen. And you're still, because Gino's contract is going to be up, you're going to need a quarterback. I just, I think going all in on the short term, to negate the long term in year one of a rebuild would be a mistake. It is so tempting, and I understand the temptation. And I'm not going to be mad if they decided to put the resources in that direction, but if I were them, I would stick to the process. No pain, no gain. Sometimes you just have to go through the process. Get the rookie, get the NFL ready quarterback. Get the guy, get the Will Levis who knows how to work an offensive scheme who really has worked this offensive scheme who could thrive in it he's not going to know defenses co- defensive coverages the way that Gino does he's not there's no way but also hopefully the defense is better and has more personnel that can help come in and contribute and help make take some of the pressure off of Will Levis if, if that were to be who the Seahawks selected right now based off take-a-thon the Seahawks have the number 10 and number 11th draft uh, picks in the draft as things stand right now. If the season were to end right now, their pick would be number 10 and the Broncos pick would be that they now have would be number 11. That's enough to get a, you know, a, I say get one defensive player and get a quarterback. That's just the way to go because all the even all of the scenarios I've thrown out with Geno complete neg- completely negates the competition. Somebody's going to be willing to pay Geno what the Seahawks can't. The Bears, for crying out loud, have bucos, just tons of cap space. They could throw the book at Geno if they wanted to and, 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 and give Justin Fields a little bit more time to develop or decide to move on from him altogether or give him a veteran presence, whatever they wanted to do. They could do that. They got the space to, they got the money to pay him. There are a lot of quarterback needy teams and not everybody's going to feel confident they can get their guy in the draft. 
Somebody's going to want an insurance policy. Somebody's going to be willing to pay for an insurance policy and then the Seahawks get into this bidding war. Stick to the process. That's what I say. Stick to the process. Let Gino get you as far as he's going to get you. People say it would be a loss if you let Gino walk. And it would be. I'm not pretending like it's not. And I'm not pretending like it's a huge risk either because it is. Gino could go out and ball out for the next five years and the Seahawks would look silly for letting him walk. But at the end of the day, you only have so much cap space. And this team isn't ready to win now. Going in on Gino is t- making a win now move. When they when the when this Titans went in on Ryan Tannehill, they already had much more you know, further ahead. They had a good defense. They had Derrick Henry. They had AJ Brown. They were already really building towards something. They didn't have as many holes on their roster as the Seahawks as the, as the Seahawks have on theirs. That's the bottom line. Could it be a mistake? Yes. But I think it, the ultimate mistake would be paying Geno and hamstringing this franchise, both in the short, potentially in the short, but definitely in the long term. Think about it like this. When the initial trade for Russell Wilson went down, they were betting on, on themselves, John Snyder and Pete Carroll. They were saying, we can find another quarterback that can fit this system. And they may not be Russell Wilson, but they can be competent. They can do well. They will be able to grow. In this offense, we've got enough offensive weapons around to be able to sustain pretty good play, to be able to build the roster back up and not pay a ton of money for a quarterback. That was a strategy. That was a thought process. They've proven that with Geno Smith. So why get stuck there? Why get stuck in that cycle? Keep that same mindset, right? Go on to the next. You don't need to pay all this money to the quarterback position. You can build the roster around the QB, especially with a quarterback-friendly system, really. And it's not like Gino walks away with nothing. I think he has tremendously helped those tackles. So it's not like Gino walks for nothing. Any, I don't know if another quarterback could help those tackles as much as Gino has by being I mean, sometimes he can get you know not step up in the pocket or from time to time he has criticism from time to time but he does a really good job of getting the ball out quickly and not putting too much pressure on the tackles and really helping them grow along with his style of play and sure sometimes he can throw it down deep but I think he his cadence in the pocket has helped them grow it's helped the the, the whole offense I think grow Tyler Lockett has the most yards he's ever had through five games, for goodness sakes. And so if you can do it with Geno Smith, you can do it with the rookie quarterback, and you can do it, continue the cycle. It was a whole thought process. They didn't feel like they needed to to throw a black hole of money into the quarterback position. They felt like they could get a good game manager quarterback and build the team around them and become Super Bowl champions the way that they were Super Bowl champion in 2014. It'll really be interesting to see the narrative, how it continues to fold, how it continues to evolve, because I have a feeling the narrative won't stay. Gino will have a bad game, maybe a time or two, or maybe not have as good of a game, and maybe it'll be less of a discussion. But we'll continue to monitor monitor that throughout the season. I think it will be continue to be a uh, hot topic amongst all Seahawks fans. 
But I do want to go back and, and do a little bit more game recap. Like I said, I didn't want to focus too much on it. I think it's a similar story. Good offense, terrible defense, calls not going the team's way, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and there were some interesting storylines, but ultimately the Seahawks didn't win. They, they couldn't get it done um, against all odds. But there were some long-term repercussions as a result of that game, though, and that was the loss of Rashad Penny. Unfortunately, Rashad Penny suffered a broken fibula. And he is out for the season. That is a tragic loss for somebody who I think really needed a year, a full year of putting together some real production. He is so talented. He has proven that he is talented at least, but he is just cannot stay healthy. And it just seems like the guy's unlucky. I mean, the hit that he took, a lot of people could have got injured. The way that he fell and the way he was kind of fell on. Just unfortunate, really. It does make it potentially more likely that if Seattle wanted to bring him back, that they could. Because I don't think he's going to get, you know, much money in the market. The market won't be there for him because nobody's going to be willing to pay a running back a lot of money who can't stay healthy for more than six games. Unfortunately, that's a rough way to put it. But it is has been his reality. And when he has been healthier longer, he hadn't been able to have the production. So... That'll be something to watch, but he's out. It is an opportunity for the rookie, Ken Walker the third, to really show up. And he is no Rashad Penny. That is obvious. But will he be able to keep the run game going? Right now, the Seahawks are number one in yards per carry, actually. And a lot of part a lot of that has to do with the production of Rashad Penny. Will Ken Walker be able to produce similar production where the the run game can continue to be productive and respected? to really allow for some deep passes by Gino. I think the run really complemented the pass up, you know, these past few weeks. The question is, will the run game still have some teeth to it? And can Rashad Penny carry the load? Will DJ Dallas be able to be a complimentary secondary back, running back number two? Hadn't seen a lot of good things from DJ Dallas to this point since the preseason, I'm curious is if he will be able to step up as well in a time such as this with Travis Homer still being on IR. Another loss was Al Woods who got injured in the game and it is questionable about if he will be able to return in the game on Sunday. That's something to monitor. He did not practice at Wednesday's practice. They said they plan to rest him for the next few days. See if he'll be ready to go on Sunday that's a really big thing to watch because this defense doesn't have much going for it, but Tariq Woolen and Al Woods have been consistently great for this team. And even at his age, he is still 100% some of the engine running to allow anything productive to happen on defense. And he was missed in the second half of that game against the Saints. But, you know, there were, there were, there were some hits. Gabe Jackson, he went out. With an injury as well, um, Shelby Harris is all, he also did not practice Wednesday, so there are, there's some key injuries to watch for in particular this week. We'll continue continue to monitor that for sure. But there are some positives that came out of this week so far as well, and that is that the Seahawks re-signed Bruce Irvin, uh, a fan favorite. I know I am certainly excited about this signing. Bruce Irvin is exactly what this team needs. And I 
I don't know how much production he's going to give the team, but my goodness, he can't be any worse. He can't be any worse than Daryl Taylor has been. He can't be any worse than Cody Barton has been. And I get the sense they plan on playing him more at the edge, letting him set the edge because he can competently do that in a way that Daryl Taylor has proven not to be able to do. He's going to allow for Nuchenna Nwosu to be able to get a little bit more rest because he's quite frankly playing too much. I, honestly, they could put him an inside linebacker and he'd be an upgrade over Cody Barton just because of the IQ alone. Cody Barton is still obviously struggling each game. But he's going to be a boost and really kind of tease these guys at a real young linebacker spot what it means to really play Seahawks defense. He's going to be a life and, and add some... Hey, I, they've already talked about his humor that he brings to the table. And they're going to need that. The defense maybe needs to have a little bit more fun. Maybe they're too serious. I don't know. Maybe they need to... They've been so so serious They and, and is too focused and they're overthinking. I do see a lot of that, especially with Quandre Diggs. I'm trying to overcompensate for things. And maybe they could use a few laughs. Um, just to take things back and remember that it's still football at the end of the day. And maybe that can help bring some some rallying of the troops, if you will, back to this defense so that's that's exciting I, I hope that he will get the opportunity to play I know he hadn't really had a full week but I don't care I mean really like I said this linebacker group needs some help and I think Bruce Irvin can can really provide a boost even if not in production just in morale and veteran presence maybe he can be to Daryl Taylor what Rashad Penny or what uh, Adrian Peterson was to Rashad Penny kind of unlock something in him because for Taylor half of it is effort I just sometimes just don't see effort from him and Bruce Irvin is always a hard 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 work worker um high motor guy he's gonna give you everything he's got maybe some of that can rub off on Taylor and sort of unlock him in at least that way that'll be exciting to see but another thing that I make that I'm excited about is the opportunity to do Seahawks superlatives. They are back. Uh, we're bringing them back. As before, remember, we just all we do is go through, pay attention to some of the things that happened in the week before, and we evaluate um, where the Seahawks are and just do some fun superlatives around who did well, who didn't do well, that sort of thing. So. My official under the radar award is going to go to uh, Shelby Harris this week. Shelby Harris has been one of the better defensive linemen, or probably outside of Al Woods, the only other good defensive lineman. He's been able to provide some interior pressure. Um, he's been good at sort of keeping the linebackers clean. And, and when he's not there, his presence, it, it's felt just like with Al Woods. So I just wanted to give him, he's the, he's the most under-the-radar guy this week, I think. Nobody's really talking about what Shelby Harris brings or what he does. He's very easy to overlook, but I think he is a uh, very important presence on a very weak defensive line. Most likely to get benched. You know, I've been talking for a while about Gabe Jackson and Daryl Taylor. I'm not going to do it again because Daryl Taylor's already been benched and Gabe Jackson's been benched by injury. He's not exactly been benched. But this week, I think I want to highlight Michael Jackson 
Michael Jackson is likely to get benched because Artie Burns is back and he played a few snaps in that last game and honestly in those few snaps he he played slightly better than Michael Jackson did. Michael Jackson did not have a bad game. PFF gives him a 64.4. So pretty average, um but he did get beat still in coverage. Artie Burns, however, was able to grade out at a 69.5. Um he was actually the fifth best defensive player ranked on PFF. Artie Burns was only targeted once, but he didn't allow any receptions, which is a good starting place. Um, can't say that about any of the defenders when they first got targeted. Uh, they typically allow receptions. I just think he's got a little bit more to offer, and that extra bump I think will go far on a defense that has a lot of holes and can't afford a lot of errors and things like that. I really think that the extra boost that Bar- that Artie Barnes born I keep missing up this this man's name Eddie Artie Burns can provide the extra boost I think is needed because here's the reality we haven't talked about it yet but Tariq Woolen is absolutely balling out we're gonna talk about him in a little bit but because he's balling out I just think quarterbacks are gonna stop throwing his way which means. There's going to be a, everything is going to come by the way if my, of Michael Jackson. And I don't think he can handle that. I really don't. I don't, think, I don't think he can handle being targeted without at that rate without being a liability. They're going to throw at him because they feel like he's a liability. You need somebody who can really hold their own. I think you need somebody with a little bit more veter, veteran savvy and starting experience. Artie Burns can be that. He really can. I, I believe that he can hold it down with Tariq Woolen not being targeted intentionally and and not be a liability. At least that's my hope. So my thinking is that they really should start Artie Burns. Give him that shot. See what he can do alongside Tariq Woolen. They had a really good pairing last week. Ranked number four, Tariq Woolen and five Burns respectively. See what that pairing can do. See if they can build on that momentum. Like I said, Artie didn't get a lot of snaps. He really didn't. But in his time, he made a big impact, and and the defense needs as much of that as they can get. Too many holes to be filling at this point. They've got to get it under control, and you can only do that by playing the best talent, play the best guy. Michael Jackson's not a rookie; he's not a draft pick, so there's no you don't gain anything by starting him over Burns. They're both on one year deals, so. He's my most likely to get benched on defense. On offense, most likely to get benched is Austin Blythe. This has not really been talked about a lot, but it is so worth talking about. He is rated by PFF as one of the worst centers in the league. The, the worst, last I checked, the worst. He grades out at a 43.4 this season. That's his worst season by far. It's bad. And he's got some bright moments. He had one good game against Detroit that's sort of helping his average. But otherwise, he's been a sub-40 player. And I know PFF isn't the end-all, be-all, but it's probably one of the best ways to rate offensive linemen for sure. And his it's been inconsistent. He's not been consistently strong in the run game, bad in the pass. Not been consistently bad at the pass, but good at the run. He's been inconsistent in both. He's had, he's had games where he's been abysmal at the run game. He's had games where, but he's been better at pass protection. He's had games where he's been bad at pass protection, but he's been better at the run game. 
There's not even something you can depend on one way or the other to really say this guy's reliable. How I how do I know he's most likely to be benched? This the staff decided to sign Joey Hunt to the practice squad. Joey Hunt. Undersized Joey Hunt. Joey Hunt's nipping at the guy's knee. I mean uh, knees. Kyle Fuller isn't really any better. I don't understand why they even kept Kyle Fuller, but they did. If Joey Hunt is on this roster, Austin Blythe is in jeopardy, and he should be. I understand that. I think the thing he does best is communication, and that's probably what Kyle Fuller stinks at. But he is physically getting mauled, and he is repeatedly a liability in the interior of this of this game. And with Ken Walker, uh, the third, uh, he's a rookie. I don't think he'll have the savvy in terms of being able to overcome some of the deficiencies in the interior offensive line the way that Penny did. I question his ability to do that. Rightfully so. He's a rookie, and, it, and it'll show. Can this team continue to have that much of a liability at center? I don't know, but he really is playing like the, one of the worst centers in, in this league, and something's got to shift at some point. So I'm calling out Austin Blythe today. He is, offense is most likely to get benched to this point. On a brighter note, let's talk about most likely to succeed. On defense, I want to shout out Ryan Neal. Ryan struggled in his first game that he got snapped, you know, more regular snaps last, you know, last week. But I think this week against the Saints was a lot better for him. He He only allowed 29 yards. He had a 60% completion rating, which isn't great, but it's better than some of the other guys have been lately. You know, I, I think I think I liked his tackling ability. I liked his aggression. He's not missing tackles out there, which is huge for this defense. And I think he'll be able to play a little bit better as it gets his legs under and more comfortable. He was also able to play the in some of the three safety looks. I think he was able to provide a little bit there. He's able to blitz some. I think he's the guy. He played 100% of the snaps instead of Josh Jones, and I think that's the best way. Let Josh Jones come in and be a third safety, if you will, from time to time. And it's the best role for him. You get the most out of your safeties that way, I think. And I think they'll continue to build on that. I saw some promising things from the from Ryan Neal in that regard. I think he's most likely to have, you know, again, a couple things got away from him here and there, but I think, you know, Ryan Neal will be able to be a a good positive presence on that defense. And then on offense, of course, the obvious, I could go Ken Walker the third, right? Like he's the guy, he, he's going to be starting in his first game. He's most likely to, you know, succeed. I'm going to go a different direction. I'm going to go with Phil Haynes, who came in to fill in for Gabe Jackson when he got injured. And Phil Haynes had the highest pass block rating, Um, which is interesting because he was a guy who was more known as a run blocker, but he's really evolved as a pass blocker. He's still young. He's still got upside. And I think he gives you more in terms of upside in the run game. Gabe Jackson had a slightly higher PFF score with run blocking than he did. But man, I think he's younger. He's got upside. And then it's just, that was his first game. So I think he'll play even better. That. That yard, that uh, 
70-yard run that Ken Walker had was in large part, I mean, Phil Haynes was in for that. He was in for that play. He ran behind the, the hole that Phil Haynes blocked. And it wasn't just him alone, but I really think that that two-man game between Phil Haynes, I think he can upgrade this offensive line. I'm going to be frank. I've been very hard on Gabe Jackson. I've been wanting to see him benched. I think Phil Haynes brings an upside and a youth and a talent physically, physicality that has just been missing, especially in the run game. I think Ken Walker might be able to be to be successful because of the insertion of Phil Haynes into the lineup. So I think he is set up to succeed. He's not going to be a guy that people talk about. I don't think people will probably talk about Ken Walker, but mark my words. If Phil Haynes plays well, you're going to hear about it right here on on Seahawks 360 because I think that if Ken Walker succeeds, it's going to be in part because, in large part probably, because Phil Haynes also succeeded. So let's move on to most improved though. And on defense, I want to highlight Kobe Bryant, who is coming along pretty well. I you I think I see him getting better, and they're not they're not a whole lot of stats to back that up right now. Uh, not right now. PFF still gave him a fifty-eight point four, but that's much better than he's been graded before. He's still allowed. Uh, well, he had sixteen yards. He's still allowed a touchdown. Uh, but that touchdown catch was. I really think. I mean, I understand why they counted it as a touchdown, but Kobe Bryant just did everything he could to break that up, and in the end, he ultimately did break it up. He was right there on that play. And I think two weeks ago, that's not something you see him there. I see maybe he's out of position or he just, you know, leads to it leads to a busted coverage altogether. But I liked his ticky tack play. He looks like he's getting more comfortable. I've been really worried about him being in the nickel spot because I do feel like he's playing out of position. I'm not sure he's a natural nickel. But, you know, just seeing someone seeing him on the field, not allowing as many catches, not being as much of a liability, being a little bit more sticky in coverage, it's encouraging. And I think that um, ultimately, maybe this isn't hurting his growth. Maybe it is still helping him, even if he's not a natural nickel, per se. And then on offense, I want to shout out Noah Fant as being the most improved. Noah Fant, he always came in as being talented, but I I don't really feel like he showed himself as being, you know, as a part of the the Seahawks system. He, He hadn't been bad, but he hadn't really done anything to stand out. He lost a lot of people's or he got a lot on a lot of people's bad side in the preseason when he didn't make any effort to stay in bounds after Geno threw him a beautiful beautiful pass he's still been getting a lot of reps but Will Disley has been the clear you know really I think the better tight end all around up to this point but Noah Fant had a really good game uh he's pretty positive when it came to his pass blocking he had 49 yards on three receptions which means he averaged about 16 yards per catch which is it's pretty pretty good stuff he was given he was ranked a uh, 73 overall on offense and he was really able to provide this team with some good versatility I thought and then finally the awards for the best all around goes first up to Tariq Woolen Tariq Woolen has moved from most improved 
two best all around because this guy is dominant. I mean, he's playing at an all pro level. Right now, he leaves all corners and interceptions as he got his third interception in a row last week. He graded his highest that he's graded to this point as a 73 on PFF. And he only allowed a 38.9 passer rating. The guy is really been dominant and you can still see there's room for him to grow. You can see he's getting more comfortable. You can see he's adjusting his technique and, and small things like that. There's some things he could do to be even better, but just his sheer speed and his length allows for him to continually be a playmaker for this team. 66% completion. I mean, really, it's so comparable to Richard Sherman, and that makes it so exciting. It really does because, it, honestly, I'll be I'll be honest. I'm I've been frustrated. I've been frustrated with the hype that Sauce Gardner has gotten, that Derek Stingley Jr. has gotten, it, and they haven't done anything compared to what Tariq Woolen has done on the field. He has continuously been a playmaker for his team, and that's not easy to do because he's got absolutely no pass rush to help him. And I mean no pass rush to help him. So for him to be doing the things that he's doing with so little experience, you could just, I mean, you could see it's its so obvious. It, it pops out on film. If you look at his interception he basically is running the route with the with the running with the wide receiver. You can see his wide receiver background as he's running that route. He's basically running it himself. His fluidness, his his ability to just turn his hips and get up and run, his ability to bait quarterbacks to make it look like they'll like the target be wide open, but he his burst just allows for him to just have a quick recovery. He has been the absolute most fun part about watching this defense. And I, I would say he is officially the best defender on that field. Even over Big Al Woods, who has been dominant in his in his own right. I can't talk enough about Tariq Woolen because he looks like second team all pro right now. He's he's got a strong case. I can only hope that he continues to make plays to get this national recognition because he deserves it. He deserves to be one of the few rookies in history to be nominated as all pro. Certainly pro bowl. So it is it's continued this defense has had its struggles, but man, is Tariq Woolen absolutely the life of the defensive party. And then our offense, it's an old story to tell, but it can't be anybody else but Geno Smith. He is absolutely lighting it up week after week, continuing to exceed expectation. Geno Smith, I've already given you the statistics, just the things he's doing, the elite level that he's playing. He is absolutely the best offensive player all around on the Seattle Seahawks team. So anyway, guys, we got into a lot today. Uh, that's all I have for today. We're going to get you guys a preview to the upcoming Cardinals game very soon. So we'll talk a little bit more about that soon. In the meantime, be sure to follow me on Twitter at CandiceH901. That's CandiceH901. Be sure to follow the show, Ethos Seahawks, on Twitter. And if you're listening on YouTube, why don't you leave your comments? What are what are your thoughts on Tariq Willen? Do you have any thoughts on Geno Smith? Would you extend him? How much would you pay him? Uh, we'd love to hear what you guys think. 
If you're listening to us on iTunes, be sure to give us a five-star review. We always appreciate that. It helps us get to our viewers up, support the show. In the meantime, that's it, guys. That's all I got. I'm out. And as always, go hard.